listening to Movie Land on ABC Local Radio, digital and online. Hello, 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 and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. I'm recording this on April 27th. A couple of films opening in cinemas in Australia today are Free Fire and Things to Come. So I'll have reviews of them. And then an interview with Nate Gautham from his home in New York City. He has made a documentary about Colin Hay, who was once the front man, of course, for Men at Work. And if you haven't caught up with Colin Hay in the interceding decades, it turns out he's been doing a lot of fantastic musical work and his life is fascinating. And uh, Gautham's documentary is fascinating too so we'll be hearing from him a little later in the program just to let you know i should say this uh we were on a skype connection from my office in sydney to his home in new york and there is a slight bit of variable sound quality and a couple of uh, volume discrepancies every once in a while but it's it's fine recording but just letting you know so let's talk about Ben Wheatley's Free Fire. It's an odd experiment that doesn't quite come off. It's absolutely entertaining and I completely recommend it. But dare I say it, I was hoping for more, perhaps too much. I've been expecting too much from Wheatley ever since I saw 2011's Kill List, a wild, incredibly satisfying work of auteurist cinema. Terrifying, supremely confident, and wholly original while acknowledging fascinating forebears, Kill List instantly put Wheatley on my own exclusive list of directors whose films I will always see as soon as I can. 2012's Sightseers kept me completely on board, while I brushed off 2013's Mystifying a Field in England as an allowable indulgence. But last year's High Rise, while chock full of superb elements, went haywire in its storytelling, essentially replacing the second act with a montage of hysterical imagery. Indulgence indeed. Still, I love the cut of the man's jib. I feel like he makes the kind of movies I want to see. So I went into Free Fire looking forward to something, well, I was hoping for astonishing, and it isn't that. The experiment is simple. Set up a big arms deal in a contained location with a group of dangerous men and one woman, get some fun characterizations going, then chuck a spanner in the works, get them shooting at each other, and don't stop. Finish at 90 minutes. For this experiment to really work, it needs to fulfill a few criteria. We should be entertained the entire time. The gun battle should have an interior logic allowing us to follow it. We should care at least a little about the characters and the situation, and it should be fun. The good news is it's definitely fun, and we do care at least a little about the characters and the situation. The first, shortest act of the film is the setup, and a batch of really good comic actors get to strut out some terrific oddballs in very deft strokes. Shalto Copley gets the juiciest ham as Vernon, the purveyor of the fine firearms. He gets to use his own South African accent to terrific comic effect. Cillian Murphy plays one of those small, good-looking IRA guys, he's buying the guns, who just have a killer vibe about them despite their build. Army Hammer, looking really tall amongst this bunch, plays a super cool middleman. He actually lights up a joint and gets high later on as the bullets are flying. And Ben Wheatley regular Michael Smiley plays the Michael Smiley role on the IRA side. Brie Larson's The Chick... Unfortunately, not likely to get her another Oscar. It's a pretty small role and not as fun as the guys, I'm afraid. And along the way, some more greasy thugs come to the deal with terrifically icky turns from Jack Raynor, Sam Riley and Enzo Silenti. 
Babu Sisse, as Vernon's more level-headed offsider, stabilises things a little, at least for a while. Oh, and it's set in the 1970s, so everyone looks groovy with facial hair, big lapels and leisure suits aplenty. So far, so Reservoir Dogs, and we wouldn't have Ben Wheatley if we didn't have Quentin Tarantino. Unfortunately, once the bullets start flying, the film stumbles a little in achieving its goals. Despite stupendous technical care, Wheatley planned out the hour-long or so gun battle on models, in-story boards, and on Minecraft, the video game, we still lose track of who is where and when, who's shooting at whom, how wounded everyone is, and what's generally going on, and that is a shame. The situation is confusing for the characters, but when it is so also for us, we can drift, and I certainly did. In its long second act and into its third, it's a very easy movie to tune out of, because... Well, hey, you know what's going on. A gun battle. All you're really sticking around for is to see who survives at the end. I still have Ben Wheatley on my list. I'm glad he's playing with form. Good on him and more power to him. But accepting Free Fire's flaws remind me that Wheatley's most obvious modern influence, Tarantino, has never put out a film that is anything other than masterful. Tarantino takes his time putting his films together. Ben Wheatley is in a fertile, prolific, hyper-productive period. Perhaps if he slowed down, his output, that is, his films would be more polished. But there would be less of them. That's not a bad dilemma for those of us who love cinema to have. Free Fire opens today, if you're listening to this podcast, on April 27th in Australia, and it's been out about a week in much of the rest of the world. Another film that opens today in Australia is Things to Come. Mia Hansen Love's fifth feature film as a director plays out a little like an archetypal country and western song. Our hero, in this case, Isabel Huppert's Natalie, loses a succession of the most valuable things and people in her life, yet somehow gets by and even gets stronger. It works as a fascinating companion piece to Elle, Uber's Oscar-nominated film from last year, in which her character put on a brave face following one of the most wretched traumas a human being may be put through. Here, uh, the traumatic events are more mundane, but her resilience is similar. She smiles at fate. Datile is a Parisian philosophy professor, and her philosophical approach to life seems to be the film's raison d'etre, for it otherwise eschews a lot of dramatic practice and a lot of drama. Life happens to Natalie, but the ramifications aren't necessarily going to be contained within the movie's brisk 102 minutes. You might call it a character study or a slice of life, but it's a bit more than that. Natalie's resistance to self-pity is quietly inspiring, and her advocation of philosophy and intellectual engagement to deal with life's blows, its unfairness, is good advice in troubled times. Upper plays Natalie with her customary brilliance and sense of detachment. She's become invincible, and so it seems have her recent characters. The chink in her armour may be her interest in a past student of hers, Fabian, played by Roman Kolinka, tall, handsome, and so perfectly cast that you'd swear he was off to a discussion on radical thinking the moment he leaves any frame. Fabian has taken Natalie's philosophical teachings to heart and taken them further. He's moving with a group of like-minded young people onto a farm where they continue a postgraduate academic lifestyle of self-sufficiency and revolutionary ideas.
In this context, Natalie visits the farm twice. She is visibly old and bourgeois, stuck in the comforts of academia. To her, the students may seem comically idealistic, or they may be living the dream. Her attitude to Fabian is similarly conflicted, and the film's most tantalising question is, of course, whether the relationship is going to take a sexual turn. Hanson Love shoots sunnily. Natalie's Paris is relatively calm and spacious, with a glorious riverbank which she takes her students to occasionally. Watching this group of smart young people discuss philosophy on the banks of the Seine will scratch your francophile itch, c'est pour dire. Whether the film scratches your dramatic itch depends on how much you need. Things to Come is, like its protagonist, hardly prone to hysteria of any kind. It is based directly on Hanson Love's mother and observes the casual reality of life. That's Things to Come, opens April 27th, which is while I'm recording this here in Australia and I think is in various states of release in other markets around the world. You're listening to Movie Land with CJ Johnson. Coming up, I interview Nate Gautham from his home in Manhattan, or at least in New York City, pardon me, to talk about his documentary, which is available on streaming services, about Colin Hay. We all know about the explosion of independent film. People are making feature films more and more these days on their own, outside of any system, let alone the Hollywood studio system. Alongside the rise in feature filmmaking in dramatic terms is a rise in the independent production of feature-length documentaries. My friends, the comedy film nerds, Graham Elwood and Chris Mancini, made one over the last couple of years called Earbuds, the podcasting documentary. Documentary. It is about the phenomenon of podcasting, and you should go check it out. It's available on the internet now for you to purchase at a very reasonable price. While showing their film around at various festivals, they have bumped into other independent documentary feature filmmakers, including Nate Gautham, and when he appeared on their podcast, Comedy Film Nerds, it pricked my interest not only because I enjoyed his vibe and I enjoyed the sound of his film, but it was intriguing because it was a film about Colin Hay from Men at Work and not made by an Australian filmmaker. Nate lives in New York City, so I decided to get him on the show, and he joins me from his home in New York City. Hi, Nate. How are you? Hey, CJ. I'm good. How are you? Good. How did you come to make a feature-length documentary about Colin Hay? Well, uh... Who Australia, of course, claims as our own, but as is revealed in the documentary, he's still very, very, very much a Scot. Yes, very Scottish. And, uh, but the, it's the fascinating thing about Colin, or one of many fascinating things about Colin, is that he's actually lived in the United States since uh, 1991. So he tends to say that he's, uh, you know, it's hard for him to decide whether he's Scottish, fully Scottish, uh, fully Australian, or, or at this point, fully American. So, and his largest audience um, is still in the U.S., so he tours regularly. Uh, so when I heard his um, solo music, uh, which actually had been introduced to me in, in, the, in 2000 by uh, the other co-director on the film, Aaron Falls, 
uh, he and I had gone to college together, played music together. We, you know, had known each other a long time. And he was a director. I had done like a lot of work in film, although I hadn't made it a uh, feature film. And we wanted to do something together. And anyway, uh, like I said, in 2000, he hipped me to Colin's solo music, and I was just blown away by those songs. And, and I'm thinking of the more, you know, his solo tunes, the songs like "Waiting for My Real Life to Begin," which you know what we ended up titling the film after. And um, I just don't think I'll ever get over you and beautiful world. They were just really beautiful songs. They were, they were had a really different vibe, a really different tone than the big men at work hits. Um, his voice, his incredible voice was kind of the through line, but that piqued my interest and really made me feel like this is a real artist who, who is keeps working on his craft, you know, 15 years after his big commercial success he's still working on being a songwriter and a performer so that that was intriguing immediately and when you added the layer of um of kind of the ups and downs of his career leading up to the point where i first heard his solo music it just you know became the kind of story that i think really lent itself well to the music documentary uh kind of idea so what happened next did you google him did you reach out to him personally how did you yeah that's exactly what we did. We didn't have any way of getting in touch with him. So, you know, from his web, I scoured his website for any kind of contact info we could get. And I came up with his um, his agent's email address. So I wrote a quick email and, and then got him on the phone and I gave him my whole spiel and I was really excited and I felt like, we, you know, this is going to work. And uh, you could just hear as soon as I finished and, and, and I started to, he started to talk, he just, he was like, yeah, right. <laughs> and it just, it just didn't feel like it was going to go through. And, uh, but he said, you know, if you have something in writing, send it my way and we'll take a look at it. So we had this treatment that had like kind of our whole idea and the, and some photos and the, um, the title of the film and everything. And we sent it along and uh, we didn't hear anything for two and a half weeks and so we started to feel like, well, you know, this may not happen. And then we got an email and uh, he was excited and, and wanted to have a conversation. And we really just had uh, one conference call, one meetup with him, like on tour. Uh, we went out to his tour stop in Salt Lake City, Utah, and hung out with him for a day and a night. And, uh, and, and that was it. A couple, uh, like maybe three weeks later, we were chasing him around the UK with cameras. So how do you construct that pitch document to him? How do you pitch a person on the story of their own life? You're like, you know, that initial thing that you sent him, what are you saying? Yours is sending him, this is how we're going to talk about you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to do. And uh, I think surely Colin felt like it was weird to see somebody pitch back to him the idea of telling his story. But um, I think we got lucky because for us, we felt like the most intrigue. I mean, this was just a hunch, but uh, as we went down the road with it, it turned out to be more true than we could have imagined. But we, you know, we felt like the thing that was so intriguing was that it was still really relevant. You know, it wasn't like, I mean, I really appreciate sort of posthumous music docs, you know, made about cats that have passed on um some of those can be like amazing like the marley one is great and and the george harrison doc is great but i you know from my standpoint i was really interested in doing something that still had relevance now you know today yeah and the fact that colin was still actively making new music putting it out there and 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 constantly touring made it really appealing so we 
I think our treatment le- uh, leaned. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, leaned. leaned, leaned yep. Yeah, leaned. Leaned pretty heavily on uh, on the the more current. You know, it wasn't only just a retrospective of yeah. men at work and then just. You know. Well, you do men at work. You dispatch men at work very efficiently. Like, as I seem to remember it, it's at the half hour mark that it's done. You basically spend half an hour on men at work and then that's done. That's exactly right. And that was tough. That was really tough to do. And it was a tough decision to make because, um, you know, the, the men at work story is big enough and, and crazy enough and has enough fascinating yeah. detail that you that that could be a film unto a 90 minute film unto itself um and yet you know we really wanted to do a film that was short certainly about men at work in some regard and, and you can't certainly can't tell colin's story without telling a version of the men at work story but it, we did want to focus the, the the main focus of the film to be more colin and his his overall career not just men at work. So, so we decided, and we also didn't want it to be a three hour film. You know, it yeah. just, uh, felt like it was going to be more appealing to people at a nice kind of, you know, I think we're under 90 minutes, you know? So I think that, you know, when people see a, a two and a half hour documentary, sometimes they get a little uh, intimidated, you know? Yeah. You've got an awful lot of archive footage and video clips and men at work music in that first half hour. I'm imagining that that first half hour was by far the most expensive part of the entire project. <laughs> yeah, from a licensing standpoint, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was no joke. Um, Did you, were you aware of that stuff going in? Because I'm in just terms of people being inspired by your story of making an independent feature length documentary. You know, how aware were you of the costs? Because you know, everyone says all the time these days, anyone can make a movie. Just grab a camera and do it. But things like licensing is still extraordinarily expensive, right? That's absolutely true. Yeah, um, and you know, it is true. Grab a camera, go make something. But um, but and that's a beautiful thing, and 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 it's ex- an exciting time because of that. But. You know, these still, I mean, so I come from the music world, you know, I, I played in bands for many years and I have been an audio engineer as well. So I've, you know, done some recording and some mixing and producing and stuff. And, you know, in this boom that we've seen that's concurrent with the film boom in the music world where everyone's like, oh, you can make a record in your living room. You can buy mics for $100 and you can buy, you know, Pro Tools on your computer or whatever. And all of that is true, but it doesn't mean you're going to make something good you have to really (laughs) you just you have to be you have to still practice and learn and and same in filmmaking we had to learn how to put a film together you know and and that was a huge learning curve that piece of like oh yeah you can use as much music as you want but you're going to pay for every second of it (laughs) and if it's and if it's you know huge uh super popular music like what we were dealing with then you're gonna pay a lot and and i have to admit that um colin has still a, a really good relationship with um, with his with Men at Work's former label, or I guess not former label, still their label, and um, and so he was able to help us get you know like a little bit of help, but um, but you would you know once even getting like sort of a friend rate, if you will, you're still talking about a huge amount of money, which yeah was was a big learning curve. I didn't really realize that. Yeah, in every case of music documentaries that I've ever covered or read interviews about, every single case, you always hear someone at some point, you know, the director at some point say, 
oh, you know, if we didn't manage to call Bruce directly, if he didn't pick up the phone, we never would have afforded it. Like, it sounds like the artists themselves, even when they don't actually own the copyright or they don't own the publishing rights, they are still always able to, as you say, get a mate's rate, you know, if you can get to it's- them and if they agree to make that phone call for you. That's exactly right, yeah. And that, that makes really a huge difference. Um, huge difference. Yeah. So the, there are some, before we get to the Lago stuff, after Men at Work, I guess, you know, there's sort of an alcoholic period that Colin and the film dispense with very, very quickly. Was that kind of an agreement with him or was it just not interesting to you? Because you just you just get past that very quickly. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um it wasn't so much an agreement, and in fact, I think both Colin and uh, our, you know, the filmmaking team now sort of wish we had had a little more of it. But um, we found it was, and you know, making making an independent film uh, and interviewing people on camera, you you like sometimes you don't. You, you know, you like the idea that you would think of everything ahead of time and you would have be completely organized. And of course, we did everything we could do to be organized and be on top of things. And then nevertheless, you still find, you know, you're going back through footage and you're sort of more in the post-production phase and the production phase. And you sort of realize, like, you felt like you... We actually talked a fair amount about it with him. But what we found was that um, Colin's sense of humor and his charm which is so natural and just kind of flows right off him. He tended to talk even about his um, battle with alcoholism, which now, you know, we were talking to him about it in 2013 and 2014. And, and it was, you know, he was sort of reminiscing about it, you know, having happened in the late eighties and the you know first year of the nineties, basically. Yeah. So he was very philosophical and, and often kind of like, he would say things that expressed how dark and hard it was, but he would say them with a laugh. Right. <laughs> and, and which was great. And, you know, in the moment when you're interviewing him, we're like, wow, this is really fun stuff. This is really great stuff. Then when you're, you know, many months later, you're sitting in an edit room and you're putting it together and you realize like the tone that we want for this is is darker it's because this is an intense thing and we had some of that and that's really what we used but we didn't have as much as we you know wanted so you know i i I mean of course i wish i could say yeah we knew exactly what we were doing and did it perfectly (laughs) and now i you know we look it back and and i think that was a really important part of his time uh his story and i wish uh, that we had a little more weight with it, but you know, we did, we did our best with what we had. Right. And, I should, um, just sorry, go ahead. Well, I should just let our listeners know that the predominant mode of interviewing Colin Hay, the, the main interview chunk, I guess that, that we get of you interviewing him, he is standing at his kitchen table, <laughs> which is a highly <laughs> unusual interview technique. How did that come about? Yes. Yes, it did he is. want well, to just he, be standing at his kitchen table? Was he was he chopping coriander? What was, <laughs> you know, close, pretty close. We so the the first day we did with him, um, I think the earliest interviews you see with him, and and it's not the, it's not in there nearly as much as the kitchen one, but uh, is sitting in his backyard, and it's a little more normal. It's framed like you would see any yeah. kind of you know documentary, and it's. It's outdoor. It's got some nice green stuff, and I think he's holding a guitar for part of it. Yep. And that and that was a cool interview, and that was <clears throat> we had a good time talking with him. 
And we went back to our hotel room that night and we thought that was great. We got good stuff there. But I we wanted him to feel maybe even more comfortable, uh, less um, on the spot and um, and more free to just riff. And 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 and, and also, you know, we had questions, um, but I really wanted a conversational um, vibe with him. And yep. I felt like I felt like in the seated interview mode, we were more just in sort of typical interview and we wanted something different. So we thought um, he's he's a really great cook and he loves being in the kitchen. So we thought, well, he's comfortable in the kitchen. He also loves making coffee. So we had this whole idea of starting that <laughs> that interview with him making us coffee and and that would sort of be and actually we were going to use that as like the intro to the film um and it was cool little piece but it you know as as post-production went on we we kind of went a different way with the beginning of the film but um what we did find was that by having him standing in the kitchen um he just was really open and comfortable and our conversation really was that it was a conversation and it was a little less interviewee and i think because of that although it is an unorthodox um framing of the shot and it is in there a lot because the conversation we were having was so rich you know but but, um it suits him so well because he is yeah he's an interesting different guy he's kind of odd and it, yeah. the framing of him standing in his kitchen kind of looking towards the upper right-hand corner of the frame just kind of works for him. Plus, he's got that funny <laughs> eye, so he's looking two that's ways. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and we found, too, think, something that I was so stoked about was that his physicality was, was uh, able to really be displayed that way. And there's a handful of scenes, uh, a handful of pieces from that interview where he does like a whole like little – you know, like one time he's talking about people drinking, you know, at the at the at a men at work show. And and it's really funny, actually. So, you know, it's it's a different kind of humor than we use a lot of his stage um, banter, if you will, yeah. uh, later in the film, as, as you probably remember. And that's really funny, too. But this was a different kind of funny, I thought. And, and, it, and, I, and I was stoked about just that physical uh, aspect to his humor. You shoot him up too. You're, you're shooting from below. So he looks enormous. He, not fat, just tall. He looks like a very big Scott. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He is, you know, he's not actually that tall, but he is formidable. I mean, right. he's just a presence, you know? Yeah. Now, talking about that presence, I mean, he's so engaging and charming and funny and obviously supremely intelligent and witty. You know, all that mm. comes through. But I do feel an edge. Is there an edge to him in the room? Yeah, I mean, or is he just is. cuddly? Because you know, I sense like no. he's ninety percent cuddly and ten percent like, wow, this guy could go crazy. I, I you know, um, I don't know if I would say go crazy, but I, I know what you're saying, and I think you're right. I mean, there is um, an element to, um, yeah, there's a certain live wire to his thing and he really is um he's incredibly kind and generous and hilarious he he's just fun to be around but yeah he has the he had you know um he can be fiery he can absolutely be fiery right and i think that's that that came across very apparently like well before the solo career in the men at work stuff you know in their videos and everything there was a sort of that's right there was a sort of dangerous electricity that made him so obviously destined to be the front man of a popular band (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right, exactly. Now, I don't sense the presence of any children in the documentary. That's, 
That's correct. He never had kids. Interesting. He's That's been... that goes untalked about. Was that's something you ever brought up, or did it just sort of fit him like a glove? <laughs> I think um, I think it was pretty natural for him to not have children. Um, I don't think it was ever. It, I mean, we never talked about it that much um, because it seemed a little. It was like, well, how come you never had kids? You know, we we felt a little fun. Yeah. You know, and and part of the answer to that too was was um, that you know his marriage. His first marriage fell apart, and his ex-wife was supremely lovely and, and really granted us a, a really fascinating interview, and she's a, a really lovely person. And, uh, and she and Colin are still on good terms. And But I think because their marriage disintegrated in the mid-'80s, I mean, that, that was a piece of why he didn't. And he actually wasn't remarried until uh, into the 2000s. So, um, so you know, so I think that has something to do with it too. But yeah, we because because he didn't have him and it, it, and he wasn't he he didn't talk about it as if um, as if he was disappointed. You know, he never said like uh, you know. Well, he's how I'm, I think the better way of putting it is uh, he's tended to seem pretty comfortable in with his life. You know, while while we were working with him anyway. Right. Um. He obviously you spend a little time on the lawsuit. You kind of spent that's sort of your third act opener, and yeah, exactly. the lawsuit was a big deal in Australia. I mean, it was front page news, you know what yeah. I mean. But I think it'll probably totally. be a revelation or much more of a revelation to outside of Australia viewers of the documentary. Yeah, so far that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, most people that we've you know, most US fans anyway that I have uh talked with over the last year and change of, of doing this film at festivals. Um, most people only had a, the smallest impression of sort of what that was and were pretty surprised by how big a deal and how kind of all-encompassing it was. Now, tell us just a little bit about making an independent <clears throat> documentary. I'm noticing, for example, that Australian viewers can see the film on SBS On Demand, which is a, multi, uh, a multicultural channel and, you know, their online presence. So you've gone about sort of selling this this thing all over the world to different platforms. We, we're working on it, yeah. It's, a, it's still a work in progress. And, and, you know, that has been kind of maybe in some ways the biggest learn. Well, I don't know if I say that, but one of the biggest learning curves um, of the whole experience was, you know, what, what to do with the film once it was done. Uh, that has been an interesting piece of it as far as distribution and, and what that all looks like. I mean, that is a big, strange world that is, that is undergoing a lot of change, has undergone a lot of change in the last five years and, and continues to. Now, did you become friends with Colin? Uh, no, I would, I would consider Colin a friend. You know, I mean, I could, I could call him up at any moment and, and he would more often than not pick up and we would, you know, have a chat and he calls me once in a while. We, we have a cool, uh, we have a cool thing. I mean, you know, I, I can't speak for it from his angle, of course, but, you know, I, I consider him a friend and, and I thought we had a good working relationship and we've, you know, been in touch even fairly recently, like in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing, there is nothing in the documentary that one would find offense with. It's a, it's a very loving portrait of a man, but were you nervous about showing it to him anyway? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's just that kind of thing of, of, uh, okay, we're going to show you your story. What, yeah. do you th- what do you think? What do you think of our version of your story? So it's a, it's odd. I mean, I, you know, I said earlier that we didn't want to make a three-hour doc. I, you know, in the beginning, the very first cut that we, like, completed 
was actually two hours and 13 minutes long. So it was really, really long. And um, he responded really positively to it. And we were really nervous. Um, so that so right from the beginning of actually showing showing him something, uh, we had a good rapport with him on it. I mean, he had thoughts about it and he had some opinions, but but overall he felt like it was he felt really positive about it, which was amazing for us. Yeah. So he he he, he commenced his sort of solo career in Los Angeles because what he did after sort of beating the booze was he did something that seems sort of counterintuitive, which is rather than fleeing Los Angeles, he moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> To be sober. Yeah, it's it's strange. I mean, he has a funny take on it, and it's something that I wouldn't have considered had I had I not you know been privy to his experience of it. But he the way he put it, he said in the in the early nineties, um, a lot of people were quitting in in L.A. So he actually said, you know, you would think it seems counterintuitive that you would think you would sort of quit drinking and 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 get back up on your feet in L.A. <laughs> but he actually found that at least in the circles he was traveling in at that time. He found it was actually a pretty good spot. To, he said a lot of people were quitting, and and yoga was kind of coming up, and meditation was sort of coming up, and and it was kind of hip to quit, I guess, in the early '90s. At least, you know, for some people. Mm. Obviously, some people were still, you know, going bananas in LA. I'm sure. Mm. It's it's interesting to see a such a talented artist in their home environment to literally see them standing in their kitchen. And, you know, for the longest time we don't meet his, his partner. And then we finally meet his partner, but does it, is it a solitary existence or has he made, especially since, you know, you're avoiding drinking, you're avoiding drugs, or does he have a lot of friends? Does he go out a lot or does he spend his nights at home watching television and making music? It's kind of a, it's kind of down the middle between the two. I mean, he has, really good friends uh in la that that he spends time with uh and, and, and a handful of them are some of the people that he'll play music with and, and write with there's a guy named michael georgiatis who's an, who's a great guitar player and composer himself and um they he co-wrote i think maybe even more than half the songs on colin's new record so he spends a lot of time with them with him and and a couple other friends but at the same time he spends a lot of time in his studio just just writing uh, by himself. Um, and the bulk of his touring, I mean, he, he does occasionally tour with bands, but, uh, uh, that will often include his wife, but he, you know, the bulk of his touring is solo. Uh, so it's often one or two people on the road with him and that's it. So I think there is a certain amount of, of a little bit of a solitary existence to it. And I think to some degree that kind of appeals to him. Uh, but he's not entirely solitary, you know. There's a fantastic scene late in the film of him on stage with his family, essentially. It's sort of like he's created this this band that consists of his partner, you know, the people he loves the most. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's true. Well, you know, music is just, um, that's, his, that's why he's here, you know. Music, he's, he's, that's his real love is music. And, and so his family, his wife is a great musician and a, be- and a beautiful singer and his sister's a really great singer. And that's who you see there yeah, uh, that's as right. well as an, that other friend. But um, yeah, I think that it sounds a little hokey, but that just the, ma- the magic of music is, is sort of what keeps him going. Yeah. And you, you get this sort of sense that, you know, extreme talent will always find a venue. 
and he found his, but there was an enormous amount of luck too, because Largo, when he found it, it seems like it was just beginning and no one knew that it was going to become the hippest room in Los Angeles, but it did. That's exactly right. And he was there for it. (laughs) Yeah. Not, I think they really, um, were great for each other in a lot of ways because, um, you know, even though his, he was, there wasn't a huge name at that point, uh, he was a big part of what made some of those early nights at Largo. And I've uh, talked to enough people that this isn't just from Colin. This is from Flanny himself and, and a number of other, like uh, um, Grant Lee Phillips, the musician who's in the film, and, and, a, and a handful of other people. You know, they all sort of, oh, Carrie Brothers and Zach Braff, you know, they all sort of attest to the fact that, you know, one of the reasons that people kept coming back was, was Colin. And it was certainly many other songwriters and singers and comedians as well, of course. But Colin was a big piece of it. And uh, but also, I think for Colin to have that, like you said, nobody knew that was going to be such a great spot. And he just needed somewhere where he could go up yeah. and play a little bit. You know, I mean, that's yeah. really that's what he needed. And, and the thing is, it allowed that room was so such a mix of comedy and music, which I think is a really beautiful thing. I mean. I think many musicians would love to be comedians, and I think many comedians would love to be comic uh, musicians. You know what I mean? Totally. Uh, comics want to be musicians. Yeah. All, all, all stand-ups want to be rock stars, is my opinion. <laughs> I, I, I think there's something to that, but I also think that a lot of – I mean, I, you know, I come at it from musicians, but uh, I know some stand-ups, and, and I love a stand-up as an art, and I, and I think that uh, to some degree, you know – the ability to like I I get up on stage I gotta have a guitar with me right. I can't imagine having a just a microphone and I just have to talk no I mean the 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 you know intestinal fortitude of that is is unbelievable it makes me quake just thinking about it so I think there's a lot of mutual respect between comedians and musicians and so I think that was an in, fascinating room for Colin because a lot of what makes his show so unique at this point is uh, the mixture of, you know, it's probably 65% music and 35% um, storytelling and talking and, and, and even like bits. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're like riffs, you know, and he's hilarious. Which is obviously what charms people so much. I mean, when you see Zach Braff in your film talking about the first time he saw it and trying to explain what it was, it was much more an experience that he was trying to explain than a gig. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, and I think... He was meeting a a man, essentially. Yeah, that's right. I think as an audience member, when you see him doing this, you go through a different set of emotions than if you're just seeing a really great singer-songwriter or just seeing a really funny comedian. There's some mix between. So you're laughing, and sometimes you're laughing pretty hard, and then you're sort of swept up in this more magical thing. I mean, I have to say, the things I have seen that man do on a stage with just an acoustic guitar and a microphone – is heroic to me and and it's and it's it is does come about through this combination of music and songs and you know comedic storytelling yeah you know there's probably another great documentary to be made about the rise of largo unless that's already happened i think actually flanny oversaw the making of one uh some years ago it's all black and white it's amazing and it has so many great performances in it and i'm fairly certain that if you go to Largo's Vimeo page. I'm pretty sure Flanny has made that available to the public to view. Uh, so I don't think it's on other platforms, but on Largo's Vimeo page, I'm pretty sure that film is just streaming there. 
Cool. Well, your film that I absolutely loved and it's made me want to go out and get all of Colin's solo work and, of course, re-listen to all the, the Men at Work stuff is called Colin Hay, Waiting for My Real Life. Now, where is the best way for my listeners to get your film where you get a piece? Like, how can they support you? Ah, What's the best place for them to buy it? Well, um, if your listeners are in the U.S., there's a lot of options. Uh, And, and, you know, iTunes, Amazon, streaming, DVDs via uh, Amazon.com, those are all you know, great. Okay. But um, iTunes is a good valid way. You, that... yep. iTunes is great. Totally. Right, okay. And, uh, it's available for rental, um, and purchase. And I would just say that if you are somebody who likes to see sort of the music bits more than once, and, uh, there's a lot of really funny moments that purchasing does send a little bit more towards the filmmakers than uh, rental. On the other hand, if you're on the fence and you're not sure at all, then rent it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Great. Nate. As far as uh, yep. as far as outside of the U.S., that's still sort of coming along. Uh, we, we're still working on and outside of like U.K. and Europe and, and Australia. I do believe that there will be digital and DVDs available in, in all those spots. Not too far from now, but I don't have the final details yet. So Fantastic. Well, it's certainly available on SBS On Demand, but also most Australians who use iTunes, you know, it, it, it's not that difficult to switch stores. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> you right. know, and of I don't course. think that's even speaking out of school. You're, you know, you're allowed to do it. You're allowed to walk into the American store, as it were. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I like that. I like the way you put that. (laughs) Yeah. Nate Gautham's film, Colin Hay Waiting for My Real Life. As I say, it's available on SBS On Demand in Australia and on iTunes and other platforms worldwide. It's just terrific. I absolutely loved it. Colin Hay is a fantastic subject and it's just charming. At the end of it, I was just so happy. I was happy to see a talented man living an interesting life and I got to watch him for 90 minutes. (laughs) Oh, that's great to hear. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so glad that, that you felt that way about it. I mean, uh, I don't know if it's weird to say about your own film, but that's generally how I feel about it too. And I think, um, I think there's still room to like be, uh, to tell a happy story without having to be sort of cheesy or, or, uh, you know, too saccharine sweet about it, you know? Yeah. And that was part of our hope. Thanks for listening to Movie Land. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CJ Movie Land. Read and subscribe for free to my written reviews at filmmafia.com.au. Watch my web TV series, Watch This, at Skippy TV. That's S K I P I dot TV. S K I P I dot TV. TV and make sure you see a movie at the cinema this weekend. Take care.